Welcome to our third deep dive message on the book of Mark. The goal of this content is to deal with the passages that we read, go a little deeper, hopefully bring something that enhances your study of the book of Mark. One thing that happens at the start of each podcast is that I re-communicate, that I don't claim to have done any of the research. Uh, my own thoughts may peek through now and then, but I really have to give honour to my Bible college professor, Dr. Rick Watts. Dr. Rick received his PhD from Cambridge and was a lecturer for many years at Regent Seminary in Vancouver. He speaks around the world. Again, I can't believe that I got to study under him. Um, among 15 to 20 experts on the earth at the moment around the scriptures. But if you were to meet him, he wouldn't tell you that. He'd just say that he's a servant of Jesus. Just so humble, would be in tears sometimes about the privilege of getting to communicate the word of God. So uh, that is where we're coming from. So in chapter four, having just finished our chapter three study with Jesus redefining family around himself rather than DNA, um, we read in chapter four that he begins to teach by the lake. Um, we need to remember when reading that chapters and verses didn't come in until the 11th century. So this is meant to flow directly on from his rejection and accusation of being possessed by Satan from the teachers of Jerusalem. Uh, this special inquiry having traveled down to investigate and their rejection and the hardening of their hearts against what Jesus is doing is what births the parables. So let's read. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake. This was typical of Jewish teachers. Sitting was the position of authority. Uh, and then he gives the parable of the sower. We won't go too detailed into this as it was preached about topically on the Sunday. Mark part two, and you can listen to that sermon if you like on the podcast. So just a few notes. In verse 11 and 12, he told them, the secret of the kingdom or the mystery has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So this is often read like Jesus is trying to stop people from understanding, but that is not the case. Uh, this is quoted in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 to 10, and it's a statement of the state of their hearts. Their hearts are at the place of inability to understand, and it will take judgment for them to turn. In Psalm 115 and 135, the psalmist talks about our God and contrasts him with the idols who have mouths but can't speak, ears but can't hear. The prophet in Isaiah's main indictment against the people was their idolatry. And the inference in the language is that they have become like what they worship. And yet whoever has ears to hear will be able to understand. So it's about that, that, that heart condition. So church, let's be careful how we listen. Let's ask for soft and malleable hearts surrendered to our Lord. Okay, so then verse 21, he said to them, Do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. These are insights into the kingdom. The kingdom will reveal our hearts. And come on, unfortunately or fortunately, don't you know this to be true? If you follow Jesus, the more you follow him, the more you allow it to be more of him and less of you, the more the depths of your heart is plumbed. A man I know said it like this. He asked me how I was going. I shared with him the good work that God was doing in me. It was hard work, but I knew it was good work. And he said, oh, no, I, he beats the crap out of you, doesn't he? Except he didn't say crap. So if you got offended at crap, know that it, you could have been a lot more offended. But it's true. He won't let that stuff stay in us buried. He brings it up out into the light so that he can deal with it. 
If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is letting us know that the state of our hearts, our openness to him is vitally important, as we'll see. Uh, To put on a good show, you might think you're getting away with it, but it actually matters. And that ears to hear is like verse 20, the seed sown on good soil. It's fertile, it will produce and more will be given it. And those who reject, don't be deceived, there will be a reckoning, but we'll get to that. It's actually a little bit fun to say there will be a reckoning, but we'll move on. Verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up. The seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces corn, first the stalk, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts a sickle to it because the harvest has come. So the kingdom doesn't need tending. We can't control it. It has its own life. It's wild and undomesticated and it will bear fruit. As a pastor and as a Christian, I find that so heartening because often I can find myself feeling responsible for the kingdom, for the reputation of the kingdom, for the fruit of the kingdom. And and as much as I'm responsible for what God has given me to steward, I'm not responsible for the kingdom. And even when I fail, which I do and which I will, I can't stay in the self-enforced gallows any more than I can take credit if things go well. God gets the glory because he is the one who is doing it and does us all well to remember that. Verse 30, again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Listen to this verse from Ezekiel chapter 17. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. You might have heard of the cedars of Lebanon. There's a twist in Mark though. It's not a cedar anymore. It's a garden bush. The rejection of the people has meant that that prophecy has now been applied more broadly. This is a garden bush. It's something small and something that is unimpressive that's planted and it becomes the fulfillment of this prophecy in Ezekiel. It's the convergence of the two ideas, the tender sprig of Israel cut off and planted on the heights of Israel. Could this be Jesus cut off from Israel, planted on the hill of Calvary and becoming the tree that everyone can shelter in? (sighs) Verse 33, with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. Why? Let's remember the parables are told to reveal the receptivity of one's own heart. So now we head into the mighty miracles, which the New Testament calls mighty deeds. These mighty deeds have also been called parabolic, that is, There is something to be seen in them, like the parables, if we have eyes to perceive and ears to understand. And I hope that we can get hold of some of those here today. So verse 35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. So something is about to happen and he is only allowing the people to see that have already followed him. 
as with the parables where only the insiders get the explanation of them. Again, it's only those closest to him that will get to witness this display of his identity. Remembering a few things, Isaiah has been prophesying about the new exodus. Isaiah is quoted, so this, you know, hundreds of years before Jesus comes. Isaiah is quoted about the way being prepared for the Lord at the start of Mark in reference to Jesus. Why did Mark put that there? We're beginning to see why. A furious squall came up. The Sea of Galilee is known for its sudden and furious winds. So this is a quite normal occurrence. But remember, it was Jesus who instructed them to get to the other, that they were going to go across to the other side. Uh, So the furious squall comes up. And the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. So they're freaking out, as any of us would be. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. All right. Firstly, it's just a bit cute that it mentions a cushion. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that about the scriptures, uh, that something's cute. But those little details, like when Paul writes this massive letter about all his sufferings and the people that have deserted him and then asks if someone could bring him his coat because it's getting cold. I love that. These things remind me that these are real people writing real reports and memoirs and instruction. And also this this thought of Jesus with his head on a cushion, it reminds me of Jesus' humanity. Fully God, as we see, and fully man, tired. We know God never sleeps and never slumbers, but Jesus, as a man, needed to. He understands our needs and understands what we go through. When you feel tired, when you feel burnt out, when you feel exhausted, don't forget that Jesus has walked this same road. A teacher, they say. This is the disciples, back to the disciples. It's the first time this language appears and we see it throughout Mark from here. They recognize he's a teacher. He's about to show them even more than he already has, that he is so much more than a teacher. He rebukes the wind, the same word used for rebuking the demons in people and the same language used in Israel's scriptures for when Yahweh controls the sea. In Job chapter 26, verse 10, By his power, he churned up the sea. He marks out the horizon on the face of the waters. (laughs) Psalm 106 verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as though a desert. Yahweh's authority over the sea is seen in Psalm 65 verse 7, who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. Come on. Psalm 89 verse 9. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Psalm 107 verse 29. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm and he guided them to their desired haven. And as you would expect, are Isaiah scriptures. Isaiah 63. Where is he that brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who sent his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who led them through the depths? Isaiah chapter 10, verse 26. The Lord Almighty will raise his staff over the waters as he did in Egypt. Come on. This is what we see. This is what we see in this passage. The fulfillment of that scripture. Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. Isaiah 50. By mere rebuke, I dry up the sea. (sighs) 
To the disciples, he says, where is your faith? Like where? Where is it located? Because it still doesn't as yet appear to be in me. You've seen amazing things and yet you don't understand who I am. Because if you did, you'd know that if I said we're going to the other side, we are going to get to the other side. I mean, there's a whole preach right there. And we can't judge them too harshly. We might think, wow, if I'd seen all those demons come out, all those people healed, I would have trusted in Jesus at that moment. Yeah. Well, we stand on the other side of history with him having died and risen again. And do we always believe that in the storm we will get to the other side? Or do we look at the waves and freak out as well and wonder how God can be seeming to be sleeping and not up rebuking the waves already? So then their amazement and fear with the question that will resound until the end of the book of Mark. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Jesus has just revealed his true identity and they're asking the question. The answer, of course, is he's more than a prophet. He's more than the Messiah. He is Lord. Paul says it right in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him he is Lord. So chapter 5, let's go. They make it across the lake. Now this side of the lake is totally Hellenized. Uh, that's not some kind of word for hell. Hellenistic was kind of Greek culture. The Greek culture has completely influenced and in some cases overridden Jewish, Jewish culture. So they went across, we're picking up the story, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. Let me read you something interesting from Isaiah chapter 65. All day long, I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broths of unclean meat. So here we are now in a Hellenized Jewish settlement and there's some pig farmers. We'll get introduced to them suddenly in a moment. They've totally compromised on Torah. They've turned from Yahweh and here is a man who wanders the graveyard because that is the place the demonic will take you. It mentions his great strength, stronger than any man, which is great they mention that because Jesus is about to conquer his ailment with a word, one word. He cuts himself, which is devastating, but associated with idol worship, right? There are many rituals that we even see with Elijah at Mount Carmel, where the prophets of Baal would cut themselves to implore Baal to answer them. Demons are totally on board with the children of God cutting themselves because as mentioned in the chapter one deep dive, we are his image bearers and they love to see the image of God defaced. Yeah, this is a deep dive, right? This is going beyond where we would on a Sunday service where you bring your friends. So here we go. Idolatry has an element of the demonic. 
Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, they sacrificed to demons, which are not God, gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods that your fathers did not fear. So the children of Israel have taken on the gods of the nations around them. They're unfamiliar gods to the, their fathers. They've just taken them on board. And Moses is saying, ultimately, this other worship is demonic. Idolatry is at its core demonic. And I believe God will set someone free from their idolatry, idolatry just with that revelation. Holy Spirit, quicken that to our hearts. Psalm 106 verse 37 says, They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Now we know they did this too. I think it was the Babylonian god, but anyway, the god Molech. The psalmist makes the false, false god Molech and the demons interchangeable. The, the Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of Israel's scriptures in Psalm chapter 96 verse 5, adds demons to idols to our um, Hebrew translation that we have. Uh, so it says... Um, for all the gods of the nations are idols and demons. Paul reiterates this in his letter to the Corinthians. So this is not just an Old Testament idea. It says um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19 to 20, do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. So idolatry and the demonic go hand in hand, which is scary. And idolatry that defaces the image of God in its worship has clearly revealed its hand as, dem as demonic. You might be freaking out with all this de demon talk and that's why it's called a deep dive. But let's head back to this man. And, and my heart breaks for this man. The torment, the anguish, I can't imagine it. I know that some of you can and I know that for some of you this is actually really close to home. I hope that your faith is rising in our strong Jesus as you read and contemplate through Mark. Most assume that this man is a Gentile rather than a Jew. Gentile is just anyone who's a non-Jew. But Jesus always mentions when it's a non-Jew, we see it. He, he talks about it. So <clears throat> I'm going to go with that he's a Jew. And let's take up this freaky passage in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. First, heck. Second, what nerve of this demon that he would say, Swear to God that you won't torture me after he has been torturing this man night and day. What gall. No wonder Jesus would always silence them rather than let them be the proclaimers of his true identity. There's no respect. There's no deference. There's no admiration. There's no allegiance attached to their proclamation. Thirdly, Jesus is so powerful that this demon who has overpowered chains, broken irons, taken over somebody's very life, this is the demon who immediately falls on his knees before Jesus. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord Church. Let's make sure that our confession and our submission is willingly and freely and habitual and natural when that day comes. Because for plenty of people it won't be. It'll be forced like this demon. We want to be those who immediately fall on our faces in joyful adoration of our Jesus being revealed. Because there are going to be people, and we don't want to be among them, who have to be forced. Their will has to be bent in order to make that confession. And Jesus' authority is incredible. Okay, let's go back to this man. 
My name is Legion, Ooh, he replied, for we are many again, yikes. Uh, and he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. This is, this is a powerful demon, as we can see, obviously, from the actions. But even the fact that he's talking almost in, in, in a God fashion, like he's saying, that it, it alternates between this singular and, and multiple. Oh, yeah, it's just a bit horrendous. Um, he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside because just let me stop there. I was just talking about him being powerful and I got a bit grossed out with the word Jesus forces him into submission. So we never need to be fearful of demons. We bear the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every demonic force has to bow. So let's just remember the authority that we've been given as well. So a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby, nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Thank you, Jesus. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. So the fact that these pigs were there shows the level of compromise in this Jewish settlement. People were, people, pigs were unclean, according to Torah. Pigs will eat anything. And so perhaps it was hygiene and health or symbolic because of their ability to eat garbage, offal, anything. So that's unclean. But pigs were also associated with Egyptian idol worship. So it could be that they would have remained separate in all practice moving forward. In any case, they were forbidden. So to be pig farmers was not cool. Unclean associations, both physically and symbolically and spiritually. And now just to think about that, consider what's ha what happens to these pigs. They're associated all the way back to Egypt, the pigs. And now with legion, an army inside, for want of a better term, inside the pigs. And they're all drowned in the sea. The sea has just been commanded on the way over here and now it is swallowing up the enemy. Again, Isaiah, who is quoted at the start of Mark, is prophesying about the new exodus. In the last exodus, Moses held out his delegated authority, his staff commands the sea, and then the sea swallows up the enemy. Jesus commands the sea, and the sea swallows up the enemy. That is one heck of a coincidence. And the people are afraid. No one rejoices, not one for the life of this man returned to him and returned to them. But let's face it, the whole story is terrifying. Yours and my prevailing emotion may have been fear as well. But the pigs? Well, that's a loss of income. They were on their way to the markets of the Decapolis, which is the 10 cities, and they would have been sold. So they asked Jesus to leave. He's just gotten the ultimate enemy to their souls to leave, but their response is to ask him to leave. God will let you hang on to your unclean stuff, even if it brings you death, because he always wants us to make a choice. He will not impose himself and force us into something that we don't choose. God will let you hang on to your pigs. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, 
but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the men went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. This is different, right? Previously, Jesus has been telling people to tell no one. Now he says to this man, go tell everyone. Well, he's headed back to the other side. He'll be able to continue his work so people knowing won't impede his mission. Interestingly, Jesus calls himself Lord to this man also, revealing himself as the Lord Isaiah prophesied about, the Lord who forgives sins, the Lord who commands the seas. We are seeing the progressive revelation of the answer to the question, who is Jesus? Well, that is all epic. I love it. And uh, we'll stop there and we'll come back with the next podcast with chapter 5, verse 21 and chapter 6.